Good afternoon. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Very nice to be with you Monday afternoon. Uh, and lots coming through regarding the song A Whisperer. Uh, those lyrics again are a simple prop to occupy. Sorry, a simple prop to occupy my time. Uh, what's the song? 2101. Anna Dean and Mark Knopf Thomas with me this afternoon and to this audio response on this. First home buyers are being warned they may never be able to save a deposit for an average priced home. Despite all the smashed avocado at a cafe you're not eating, despite deleting the Netflix or Sky sub- subscription. A new report says that the average Auckland house deposit may reach $1 million by 2045. This compiled by new financial services platform ARA. Al Netsker says that the idea that you can, through your own hard work, save up to 20% for an average price house is almost mathematically Impossible with us, era founder Derek Handley. Derek, kia ora. nice to have you on the panel. Kia ora. thanks for having me. Already, responses coming through because uh, I asked, you know, have you found it hard to save up for a deposit? As a single person, I spent 12 years slaving and saving to buy a house. A couple of years ago, I had 100k, 10% of a million. The cheapest houses in my region were selling for four to 500k at the same time. Despite that, the bank still wouldn't give me a mortgage because I'm single and self-employed. So I've put my 100k uh, into an aggressive investment scheme. This is an extraordinary stat, Derek. Uh, you know, um, what is it? Um, a house deposit may reach a million by 2045. My question is, how did you arrive at those numbers? Well, I, we spent a long time looking at the history and the historical behaviour of house prices and really questioning whether anything will fundamentally change the trajectory. And the trajectory, for better or worse, which is you know not great news for anybody, is it's basically been 6 to 7% a year for, for decades and decades. And we do have little blips, and we just had one you know, the last 18 months. And it takes a breather, and then it just marches on. And there are a lot of structural reasons in New Zealand as to why that is, but I can't see any that are going to fundamentally change that pattern in the next 10 to 15 years. So you think that we need do, do we need a fundamental structural reshift on how we get our young, our future generations into homes? Yeah, I think there's two sides. You know, one is the actual house. How do you build and buy and uh, create houses in an affordable way? And that's the real world uh, problem. The problem I've decided to tackle is how you finance them. So you've got money. That's how, you know, it's a financial solution versus the actual real world solution. And... The conclusion I got to was that the idea that you would save towards 20% uh, is getting to the point where it's yeah very, very difficult unless you're a very high earner, mathematically impossible based on the ways people think about uh, forecasting how long it takes to raise a deposit today, which is using a median household income, an average kind of home. And uh, my basic conclusion is you need to rethink how you finance a house. So the 20%, 80% model... Uh, and not just in New Zealand, probably becomes kind of three layers. You contribute whatever you can. There is some third layer that's contributed by a third party, and that could be facilitated in many different ways. And then there are the banks, which are happy to be at 80, prefer not to be at 90, particularly after Mm. the GFC. Yes, well, let's bring our panellists. And Anna, you've spoken with some real honesty about this last year, describing, or was it early this year, describing actually your 
personal story of uh, doing it all by yourself without the bank of mum and dad. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that really worries me here is that, sure, um, this number can be a million dollars for a deposit, but what does that actually mean for the total cost of those houses? It's just completely impossible for people now. And if there's any interest fluctuations, I mean, it's really a generational kind of um, horror for for people. I know how stressful it is um, for people who haven't managed to buy their first home to spend all of your time pouring over trade me going to open homes i mean it's just it's just the i don't think people who have had houses for a while actually understand and um i i really feel for people who haven't managed to get on the ladder um and it's interesting actually i have a lot of people of my generation who say that they actually feel embarrassed or ashamed to own a house when their peers um can't so I really hope older generations kind of understand how, how difficult it is for people now. Well, our feedback's coming through. I will never own a home as I'm single and I teach, as well as work mm-hmm. in the arts. It's a sad thing, and I'm not seeing a change to all the reasons as to why I will not own my own place. Derek? Yeah, I think it can feel hopeless, and I think what we've shared this week uh, is more of a stark reality of the moving target of the deposit because to date most people have said oh well the deposits you know 150 or 200 and if you save 15 or 20,000 it'll be 10 years but they don't take into account the fact that by the time you get there it's going to be double that mm. and i think so part partly i'm trying to uh, illuminate that that's a fact uh th- there's two other parts to it you i think we have to find much more uh aggressive ways to save for a first-home deposit, and that's partly what ERA does, like higher interest savings accounts or uh, higher target rate accounts, and we're going to be rolling out a much wider array of savings products that are designed for first-home buyers to at least keep a pace with the market growth. Okay, so you've tried to sort of come in with a solution into this market. Mm. Mark, uh, do you own a house? I do, I do, yes, I do. Um I guess that the housing market really is the poison chalice for any government because on one hand they want to make sure that the constituents maintain some level of of growth and and wealth for their retirement, but they also don't want to crash it to make it so affordable for everybody else that that, that those people who have got their savings in the bank are going to be massively harmed, but they also want to make it affordable. So it's a very difficult area to be in. Notwithstanding the blip we've had, the inflationary blip for the last sort of year or so with, with salaries going up, you know, considerably more than they have done forever. Um, what's the salary growth been over a long, longer trajectory compared to uh, house price increases? Well, actually, the model that we built also incorporated that. So mm. we assumed that they were going up by uh, around 2.5%, which is the labour cost index. Mm. And of course, if you started at a median household income, it doesn't take into account, you know, when you're younger, your salary grows faster. But we still have incorporated salary growth, which again, the other models don't. And in the savings process, we've also incorporated that they're earning interest on that savings, which again, other models don't. So we've tried to be balanced, like, okay, your income will grow, your savings might grow, but the deposit just outgrows you for an average house, which also impl- implies that you need to be shooting much lower, you know, on a much level, a much more entry level house, mm-hmm. be into much more uh, higher returning savings products. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, I don't think this is a New Zealand specific thing, as I mentioned, I think that layer in the middle where people don't have the bank of mum and dad, Mm. there needs to be a new set of uh, solutions that step in for that. 
And that's kind of one of the other things that ERA is pioneering, no, that we would co-invest alongside them. Say. So, yeah, you know, so knowing how the banks are now, you know, especially our banks, are incredibly profitable, do you think it should be they should be taking on more risk? I mean, it's a double-edged sword, because what happened last time when they took on more risk, the whole world almost collapsed. So you can understand why they would be so uh, unwilling to. And politically, the risk would be as extreme. If you said, oh, I'm going to pull house prices back, well, the whole thing could fall apart. Mm. So you really have... A very delicate situation, and so our approach is, okay, within the system as it is, as, as difficult and challenging it as, it as it is, what solutions can you design within it to use the system to beat the system? Derek, what do you say to those who will text in and say, look, Derek, uh, Handley, buying a house has never been easy. In my day, it was 20% interest. Yeah, but they were talking about a situation where the house price was maybe two to three times the income, and now it's like eight, nine, ten. It's not comparable, and also at a smaller value compared to your income, if the house price is growing at five, six, seven percent a year, relative, it's nothing. But when the house price is ten times your income and it's growing seven percent a year, you know how we're always taught about the power of compound interest when you're saving. Mm. Right now, what's happening to people who are starting to save to buy a house is the exact opposite. It's crushing them because the compound interest idea is working in reverse. Mm. The dream they're chasing is compounding at a pace they can't catch right, up bring to. Final thoughts, Anna? Well, I absolutely, I, I hear that so often. Oh, back in my day, we had to pay 20,000, you know, 20% interest. And it's like, do you have any idea how triggering that is for people that have a 500000 $800,000 mortgage for their first home? I think it's so insensitive <laughs> and I'm yeah, really pleased to hear you point out, Derek, that it's you know up to eight to ten times more expensive now. So the, the people reality, just really need to think before they speak around that. The reality is that one million dollar deposit will probably buy you a do up in, in Grey Lynn, you know, in 2045. I, I, well, can I just, I want to finish on this. I mean, this is extraordinary and I do want to hear from people. If you are out there listening and you can relate to this, go, I am at this very moment struggling to get that mortgage together and I'm just not finding it uh, easy at all. Um, text me, 2101. I want to hear from you. So can you anticipate there will be ongoing societal effects, Derek, uh, from a nation of us not being able to own homes anymore? Well, that's... To be honest, that's the only reason why I'm building this company. You know, I'm busy doing a lot of other things and had a lot of other activities on the go, but I spent about a year looking at this problem. I forecast it for 10, 20, 30 years. And ultimately, a home is so fundamental to people's livelihood, their community, their sense of well-being, but it's also the very best way for them to be forced into saving something for their retirement. And that is a scary thought that there are two sides of a country which one can never get a home and the other who already have a home in the family can. And that's essentially what triggered me to dive into this to build this company because I thought, well, that's not something that I'm willing to sit by and watch happen. And if I can think about creative ways to address it, then I should do something about it. Looking for solutions. Hey, good on you, Derek. Yeah, nice to have you on the program. Kia ora. Thanks for having me. Uh, that is uh, Derek Handler, the heir of founder who wants to do something about... Uh, yeah, helping get people into houses. It is uh, 18 past four, the panel, RNZ National. Hundreds of millions of dollars of funding for projects designed to reduce New Zealand's emissions through encouraging walking, cycling and the use of public transport have been put on ice. 
Waka Kotahi pressing the pause button until it gets clear direction from the incoming government. Some are happy. New Plymouth business owner Shane Devlin is wrapped. He spearheaded a 7,000 signature petition against plans for cycleways in his city, told RNZ that I'll be the happiest person in the world if the government's going to make this go away. Others not happy. And that will probably include Cycling Action Network spokesperson Patrick Morgan. Kia ora, Patrick. Kia ora, Wallace. You've called, in fact, you're not happy at all, have you? You've called this decision unacceptable and outrageous. Yeah, this is a really odd decision by someone at Waka Kotahi to pause funding that had already been approved in the budget last year. These are urgently needed projects that will help our kids get from home to school. They're good for congestion, for climate, for safety in our community. So I'm finding it bizarre that someone at Waka Kotahi has hit the pause button when we don't even have um, a new government yet. It's crazy. So it'll affect around 46 councils, several hundred million dollars put on ice, you know, uh, not to say they won't go ahead, but that is, you know, hit the pause button. But what projects in the capital city uh, will uh, be affected? Look, these are, these are projects in 46 councils around New Zealand, from, uh, you know, the far north in Dargaville all the way down the bottom of the South Island. And often these are, are councils which are really generally quite conservative. They've gone out on a limb. They've engaged with their public to say, let's upgrade our streets like this. They've won support. So it's a real kick in the guts for those councils to have someone at Waka Kotahi say, well, we're not quite sure about this, so we're going to hit the pause button. Let's go around the panel. Why don't we start with you first, Mark? Would you side with the new Plymouth business owner who couldn't be happier? Well, I mean, without knowing the actual situation in New Plymouth, but I think, um, you know, if things have been committed to and signed off and budgeted, that doesn't make a lot of sense to sort of suddenly stop them. Although I think conceptually... I like the fact that Waka Katahi is thinking that there has been a change of, go- of the government and they have been voted in with a mandate. So although the ones that have been signed off and budgeted probably should reach their conclusion and go ahead, but going forward I think it's quite prudent to listen for the direction that the new government wants to chart in terms of what they're doing with transport and infrastructure. Patrick? Yeah, I think you've really got it there, Mark. I mean, we don't Government agencies don't just stop doing things because there's a change in government. You've got to wait for new policy. And really, no one knows what that will be until negotiations are complete. So we've got contractors on standby. They're ready to build these projects. You know, this could lead to job cuts. And I'm not sure if that's something National wants on their record. So I think National needs to pull Waka Kutahi into line and get these projects rolling again. All right, Anna, you're in the capital city there. What's your thoughts? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I mean, not only does it really affect all these councils in terms of their readiness and that investment of time, engagement and consent processes and things like that, but um, Patrick, you really hit the nail on the head there that it's incredibly bad for business. I know that there are so many small businesses around the country that have would have ordered stock. They are usually, I mean, it's things like electric bus charging systems from what I can see, as well as, you know, better bus links. This is all stuff that is really needed as we face, you know, the increasing threat of climate change, petrol price rises, which are only going to go one way, and more and more people are actually looking for alternative systems um, as ways to get around. And I've got to say, those I was in Wellington last week, and the new cycleways around Kent Terrace and Cambridge Terrace and things, 
there are kids biking to school along those routes that have never happened before. Like this is literally going to get people back on bikes around the country in the ways that, you know, the boomers used to have when they were growing up. It's it's it beggars belief really that um, we should be going back um, potentially to um, hang on. The boomers had cycle lanes growing up. No, no, bike bike biked to work, uh, biked oh, to school, biked down the. Yeah, the streets were safe. The streets were safe and they're incredibly unsafe now for children. And, you know, this is what happened in parts of the Netherlands and and Europe. People actually fought against um, the dangers for children and they they blocked streets. It's all by design that they have cycleways that exist. And there's been huge growth in this area um, around the country of people wanting alternative forms of transport. Yeah, it seems it's just an absolute waste of time. I must must admit, Patrick, um, does it sometimes feel that you're fighting inch by inch by inch when it comes to cycle lanes in your city? Um, It can feel like that sometimes, but I think we're making good progress, particularly in Wellington. The city's got a visionary plan. And as Anna said, look, you're just seeing a whole bunch of more people on bikes. Look, I'm about to teach um, a couple more adults to ride bikes in my local community, there's such appetite for this. I just think it's crazy to um, to hit pause. You, you shouldn't mess with success. Mm. All right, uh, Patrick, oh, did you want to say one thing? Just going to say one thing, that with Waka Kotei going forward, I think also we need to be quite mindful at a macro level of some of the challenges in the regions around the country when the far north has been strangled by successive governments due to lack of investment in their roading infrastructure, etc. And I think that's for me, would be a priority. So when that Dome Valley Road is closed, for whatever reason, which happens on a regular basis, despite the $30 million they spent on doing it up, the far north loses a million dollars a day on the economy. And I think, you know, before... I mean, in Wellington Central, we can live in our bubbles, and Auckland's the same, where we have this amazing stuff. But actually, that when the rubber hits the road, some of those regional areas are being strangled by lack of investment on some of the basics they haven't got. Stop living in a bubble, Mark says, Patrick. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to respond to that. So the good news here is this is not transport money that is going into these projects. It's, it's climate response money funded through the ETS. So no one is going to miss out on highway funding. Um, well, the far north must have on highway funding for the last 30 years, so they are. Sure. So let's go ahead with these that are funded from the ETS, and I think we'll be, we'll be better off, especially our children. All right, Patrick, nice to have you on the programme. Kia ora. That's uh, Patrick Morgan there, the Cycling Action Network spokesperson. You are on the panel. RNZ National with us this afternoon, Anna Dean and Mark Knopf. Thomas, it's 25 past four. Well, a 12-second screaming match has reignited one of travelling's most intense issues. You know what it is. When is it ever okay to recline your seat? Have a listen. The whole trip she pushed my seat. No, you seen it. No, she didn't. She put, no. I'm allowed to put my seat back. I'm allowed to put my seat back. I'm allowed to put my seat back. Well, there is no consensus on who was in the right, so I'll leave it to my panellists because if anyone knows the answer in New Zealand, our panel will. (laughs) Uh, Anna, if the seat is reclinable, then should someone recline it or not? I, I, Yeah, it's a a tricky one. (laughs) Definitely if you're going to sleep. 
um, I think that's the way to do it. But I mean, the funny thing I find about this video is that this powder keg that America seems to be in at the moment, and um, the fact that you're always getting filmed if um, if oh, an yeah. explosion like this happens between two people. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm feeling sorry for people that they're obviously so stressed that they have to let rip like this in a in a public way. Mm. Mark? Uh, for me, if you're flying domestically, absolutely never, ever, ever in a thousand years, unless you have to because you've physically got a medical condition, etc. Um, so never. If so, everybody flying within New Zealand, you never recline your seat, period. Um, but if you're flying longer haul, and I say longer haul, I mean, you know, more than a few hours, um, it's okay to do it, but do it by stealth like millimetre by millimetre over a long period of time so the person gets used to it as you go. Um, My pe- gosh, people that, you've done this before, oh, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I could write a book. Isn't this interesting? That's actually very true. So, for example, if you go from um, uh, Wellington to Auckland, or Auckland to Wellington, how rude is it that you'd recline? Oh, just get over yourself. Sit up straight for an hour. Come on, it's only an hour. I mean, t- in New Zealand, two hours, what, max? Two and a half hours max is the longest flight. Um, but internationally, you can do it. Just do it carefully. Because some people, as soon as the, the seatbelt, or as soon as the, the, the bell gets dinged, uh, they thrust their seats back, and that just winds me up. So, no, just do it gracefully. Yeah, uh, someone says, if you have a reclining seat, yes, follow the rules. Travel etiquette, if less than two-hour flight, then don't put it back. 100%. Yeah, more than that, and you should do whatever you want. Someone says, even if someone puts it back on a short flight, that is their right. It is their seat. They can <laughs> use it to the full extent allowed. I guess the other bigger issue, Anadine, is, uh, and there's been quite a few comments about this, it's not so much that we are reclining our seats or not. It's the economies. It's the actual airlines and the absolute shocking lack of legroom that we're allowed to deal with these days, Right. Yeah, absolutely. And those domestic flights in the States are, are atrocious. You know, it's, oh, it's real cattle class stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's an awful, awful experience. So people are then very, very stressed. And um, I mean, I think lots of people these days are actually used to putting their their car seat quite far back. I mean, yeah. sometimes I hold other people's cars and I'm like, whoa, gosh, are you driving around like this? So, so maybe people are used to reclining more, plus um, they're living with you know, big reclining. Well, that's interesting. That's very interesting sociologically that more people recline. (laughs) 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 Have have you noticed that? Anna says that people are reclining these days in the way they never used to. I don't think I've seen that, but that could be a thing. Uh, It could well be a thing. Uh, I'm not reclining much. Well, hit my back. Anna, it was the opposite for me because my dad had a lazy boy. He instead of having a lazy boy. And you know the song, uh, you can rock it, you can roll it, you can put your feet up in a genuine lazy boy, and you can really recline in those babies. Did he buy that from Knees Furniture in the Octagon in Dunedin? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I know, I know that, uh, I know that store. Yeah, uh, it is four thirty. You're on the panel uh, in Z National. Uh, big response regarding. Uh, Waka Kotahi, we might try and read some of that out for you. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we have the song Whisperer uh, to come, uh, where you guess the lyrics and we play the song. Here's the line. A simple prop to occupy my time. What's the song? 